All right, great. Thank you for your attentiveness. Well, as Jose mentioned, Alan Desi, or with the Fonseca today, up in Gaithersburg, Maryland. They're actually attending right now, or will be shortly, our newly formed Spanish-speaking church there in Gaithersburg, under the leadership of Jose Lo Mercado, who's been here at least twice and spoken to us. So what a neat day for them to be there with them this Sunday. Just saw Marshall Stoy and Tammy, our honorary members here at Palm Vista. Always welcome. Hey, guys. Wonderful to see you here. They were here with the beginning of the church plant here at Palm Vista, and they are dearly loved. Ah, great. Well, we are continuing today our series in the Gospel of John, a series we've entitled Life. Today we'll be speaking from John chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. Jesus cleanses the temple. So if you could open the Word of God now, your Bibles, as we read the Word of God and hear Him address us this morning. John chapter 2, we're going to start with verse 13. As we often say here at Paul, this is the most important time right here in this service when we hear God's Word. Let's focus our eyes and our attention now as he speaks to us. Jesus cleanses the temple. Verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Let's pray. Word of God, we do ask that you would speak this morning to each and every one of us. Lord, your words are perfect. They're exactly what we need to hear today. So my trust, my reliance this morning is upon your word and your Holy Spirit to illuminate those words in us, the hearers. May we be lovers of your word this morning as we go through the book of John. For your word, we trust, Lord, and we know, is living, it is active, it is sharper than the double-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joint and marrow, judging the very thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And that is our trust this morning. Word of God, do your work. We pray. We are yours. Amen. Amen. Well, what 
are you zealous for? I mean, what are you passionate about? What arouses your anger? How you answer that question is a good indication, a very good indication of what is important to you. And sometimes that may surprise you. At my house, in my backyard, well, the kids know that they can go out, they can play football in the backyard, they can play freeze tag. Right now, the game of choice is Star Wars. They can do all those things in the backyard. But they also know this. Do not mess with daddy's newly planted trees. Do not pick my mangoes. Do not bruise my newly planted orange tree. Do not crush my banana plants. And do not steal my coconuts, okay? They know that well, the household. I'm ashamed to say. God is doing a work in me. But they know what will anger daddy. They know. And when I get angry, I'm revealing to them as well, sadly, what is most important to me. On a little more serious note, have you ever considered Christ's life? What aroused his passion? What aroused his anger? Well, he was God. Yes, he is but also human as well, with human emotions. What aroused his anger? Was it the children playing in the backyard? Was it the children tugging at his garments? Well, the disciples, when they saw this, they rebuked the children, but not Christ. We read in Mark 10 that he said, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Well, if it wasn't the children... Who was it that Jesus got angry at? Was it the sinner? But wasn't it Mary, Magdalene, the prostitute who anointed Christ's feet with perfume? Wasn't she one of his traveling financial supporters? How about the adulteress in John 8? Remember the story? The leaders of the day, the Jews, were about to stone her. What did Christ say? John 8. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he says, Has no one condemned you? Then neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. This morning, we're going to talk about what aroused Christ's passion and his anger. What, in other words, was most important to him. And we're going to ask ourselves this morning as well, do we share that same passion? And if not, we're going to have to talk about how I, how you can get it. Do we share a similar passion and zeal for the glory and the honor and the fame of God. As we'll see in the story, Jesus not only demonstrates such a zeal for pure worship, he is the one, in fact, that makes pure worship and passionate worship possible. As you'll see in your notes this morning, a theme. Come, worship Jesus with passion and purity. Why? Because Jesus is the new temple who cleanses and replaces the old. 
Let's look at verse 13. Point A, Jesus cleanses the temple. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Why Jerusalem? Because since the time of God's deliverance of his people from Egypt, he had chosen to make his presence known, his unique presence, his glory, in certain places. When the Jews were on the Sinai Peninsula, wandering for 40 years, he made his presence known in a portable sanctuary. We call that the tabernacle. When the people of God came into the promised land and they received a king. And when King Solomon came to rule, they built a permanent dwelling for God on earth. It was called the temple. The temple at Jerusalem. Although God, you see, is omnipresent, although God is everywhere, he limited or intentionally bound his Shekinah glory to the temple, to the temple in Jerusalem, the place of worship for all his people. As a family this past year, we've been reading through First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. And over and over, we read this curious phrase regarding the evil kings of Israel. And it says this, they, being these kings, did not turn from, quote, the sin of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. What is that refrain talking about? What was the deal of Jeroboam? Well, there's a big deal of Jeroboam. If you've read the history, he was the first king of Israel, the northern tribes, and the kingdom of Israel split in two. And for political reasons, he decided that he would make rival sanctuaries, i.e. rival temples in the town of Beth, excuse me, the town of Dan and Bethel, to compete, to rival the temple in Jerusalem. You see, it was the temple, the temple alone in Jerusalem, which was a unique, holy dwelling place of God on earth. The temple, as he said in your notes, was the seat of the living God. The place where humanity and God intersected. And thus, it was considered the source of holiness for the city and for the entire nation of people. So as we see in our discourse, as we see in our narrative this morning, it was the Passover. It was time of the Passover. A time of holiness. A time of cleanliness. Of cleansing among God's people. It was a time of remembering God's deliverance. And it was this Passover that was primarily celebrated at the temple in Jerusalem. Throngs of people would come from around the Roman Empire, traveling hundreds of miles, if needed, to be at this Passover. It was the destination of every God-fearing pilgrim. It was the destination of Jesus. And so we see Verse 13. Well, what did Jesus see at that scene at the temple? We read in verse 14. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. What did he see? What a quote D.A. Carson. Instead of solemn dignity and the murmur of prayer, there is the bellowing of cattle and the bleeding of sheep. Instead of brokenness and contrition, holy adoration 
and prolonged petition, there is noisy commerce. Friends, what he experienced at the temple, in the temple courts, was Miami-Dade County Fair. Last week, throw in Amelia Earhart, Animal Park, you ever been there? Together, in one scene, in one sitting, and you got what Christ saw and experienced that day. The primary issue, you see, was not that there were money changers in the temple courts. You see, all pilgrims were required to pay a temple tax, or at least all pilgrims, all males, 20 years and older, that they had to pay with a special coin, a Tyrian coin of silver. So there had to be a need for money changers. Everyone who came as well had to offer a sacrifice, whether it be oxen, oxen, whether it be sheep or pigeons, depending on what they could afford. That was not the issue. The issue at hand was that the people, the Jews, were doing business in the temple courts instead of doing business with God in his holy place. The word used for temple there, the Greek word used, refers not to the temple per se, but the outer courts of the temple where the Jews and the money changers were located. This court, this outer court, was actually called the court of the Gentiles. You see, the Gentiles were not allowed into the temple structure. This was the place of worship. It was these outer courts where the money changers were and the oxen and the sheep and the pigeon where the Gentiles came to worship God. And it had become a zoo. As we read in the other temple clearing accounts in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we read that this temple was to be, quote, a house of prayer for all nations, quoting Isaiah 56. Let's just say there was not much undistracted prayer or worship happening there. And now Jesus enters the scene. And he's not a happy camper. Let's read verse 15 again. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. What we see here, folks, is not a Jesus who is some maniac losing his cool. This wasn't a man or a finger in a traffic jam, okay? This was not a mom on one hour of sleep lashing out at her children. No, this was righteous indignation regarding anything which detracted from the honor, the glory, and worship of the Father. It was Christ's fierce opposition to anyone who prohibited or disrupted the worship of the Father. Even more specifically, it was his opposition to those who claimed to worship God, the Jews, but did not honor his Father in his house. See, it wasn't the sinner that aroused Christ's anger in the gospel. It was the hypocrite. Those who use God for their own selfish gain, for money, power, reputation. We read in verse 16, and he, that's Christ, told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. In other words, 
You mess with my father's house, you mess with me. This is personal. Do you see it? My father's house. This was a godly zeal and passion for pure worship. For all peoples, for Jews and Gentiles alike, for you and for me. Friends, this is no stereotypical, meek, and mild Jesus that we see here. A couple of years ago, Cindy and I went to see the play. It's an old play, actually, a 1970s play, Jesus Christ Superstar, playing at the little Miami Lakes Theater right there on Main Street. What I saw was someone pretending to be Jesus, skipping around barefoot in a tie-dyed shirt with flower, the flower lay, and peace symbols on his cheek. Even me, being from California, I was appalled, okay, at what I saw. Sadly, this is all too common stereotype of Christ. Oh, I love the words here from Mark Driscoll in his book, Vintage Jesus. He said, the Jesus that I was introduced to was always mild-mannered, endlessly patient, open-affirming, tolerant, only spoke in kind words, never got angry, and ran from conflict. Or to butcher the prophet Isaiah, a bruised reed of self-esteem he would not break. In short, Jesus seemed downright freakish. Definitely not the kind of guy you'd want on your baseball team because he'd never have the guts to slide hard into second to break up a double play or throw inside to a batter to back him off the plate. Rather, he'd prefer to pick flowers in the outfield and daydream about fluffy sheep while praying for his enemies and keeping his motions under control. Well, I hope you know better. That is not the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible is who we see right here. In all his passion, all his zeal, and yes, even in his righteous anger. Jesus is no people pleaser. He wasn't afraid to make enemies. And he knew righteous anger. And he knew how to use that anger as well. Jesus Christ is passionate about what the Father is passionate about. It's receiving proper glory, proper worship, do his name. Do you share that concern this morning? Do you share that zeal and that passion for God's honor and glory? Do you share the passion for zeal, for unadulterated worship? Do you share his same aggressive hatred of sin? Do you share the same jealousy for the glory of God to be seen and proclaimed? Good questions, but how do you know? How do you know? Well, here's some further questions to narrow and sharpen our thinking and to narrow our application this morning. How did you walk in here this morning to our service? Were you dragging yourself in around 10-ish so to speak? Did you, or did you come with prayerful preparation and anticipation? Did you come primarily to do business with God or business with man? That is, were you more excited about interacting with God 
and his word are more excited about interacting with friends. What's this business that I'm talking about? Well, the business that we're to be about is the business of listening, the business of praying, the business of responding to God and his revelation, the business of worship. That's what we meet on Sundays. Are you aware that your pursuit or conversation of your own personal business can not only be a distraction to you, but it can be a distraction to others as well? So what we're talking about here is loving God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. But also, the second part of that greatest commandment, loving our neighbor as ourself. Are we doing that when we come in? Are we doing that when we come as we assemble for worship? Oh, it's so easy to be distracted, isn't it? We all do it. I do it. You come in here. We're about ready to worship through song. And you remember, oh, I got to give that card to someone. Or I got to return that book. Or, oh, man, I got to check with him about our lunch plans today. Oh, I did an RSVP with her for our children's birthday party. Or, oh, man, we got to talk about that Final Four basketball game last night, man. All these things are in our minds that crowd out and distract us and translate often into conversation which can distract others from this passionate and pure worship of God. We repeatedly hear comments here at Palm Vista about how friendly and relational this church is, particularly to our guests. I love that about Palm Vista. We value relationships and we do have a fun time. I hope that never changes here at Palm Vista. That's part of our DNA and who we are. We do enjoy and we do value biblical fellowship. But we can also be, as a church, a distraction to one another as well. Are we not the ultimate ADD church, okay? <laughs> yes, it comes to the territory, does it not? Especially at the beginning of our service and also at the conclusion of the break as well. I love a quote here from Jeff Perswell, the dean of our pastor's college. So helpful when he reminds us, when God's word is being preached, you're not merely receiving information about God. God himself is addressing you through his word. Is that how you view this time? J.I. Packer adds, congregations never honor God more than by reverently listening to his word with a full purpose of praising and obeying him. Catch that honoring God. Imagine if we were to have a big birthday party here, right here at Miami Lakes Middle School. For someone we all knew by name. We put up the signs, got the decorations, got some food, and as we learned last week, God has some music, right? As well, for the birthday celebration. This is the person we're going to honor that we all know by name. This is the person worthy of honor who's been with us since the very beginning, inception of the church. In fact, we could say this person has sacrificed much. 
And the church really is what it is today because of this person's sacrifice. So we passed the microphones around to individuals at this birthday party. We bring this person up on stage. And one by one, we begin to honor this person for his character, for the means of grace that this person has been in our life. Just as we begin to honor this person, another person walks in. He's just chatting away, oblivious to what is happening here on stage, the honoring that's taking place. He's walking around, high fives. Hey, bro, nice shirt, man. Hey, catch the game last night. Well, if we encountered that, what would we say? We'd say that's the height, the depth of rudeness and of arrogance. And then after the honoring is done, everyone who's there and assembled starts saying, speech, speech, speech. So we hand the microphone to the one being honored. He's up on stage and all is quiet. And then another person walks in, just talking away. Not just talking away, actually grabs the mic himself and starts talking and grabbing the mic and the attention, literally honoring himself. You would say, that's no friend. That's a fool. Church, the one that we honor every Sunday morning is none other than God himself. It's not a birthday party. It's what we call a Sunday celebration service. And we have come to give God the honor due his name. Church, I hope you hear my heart here. It's not for us. It's for us to honor God this morning. I make this application because I think Al and I would say, we have not led you well in this area. We want to grow in this area of honoring God. Oh, it looks a lot of different ways. One of the ways it does look is that solemn attentiveness at times, that anticipation of being postured and focused by our Lord and Savior, that we may hear his word and worship him. That is our hearts this morning. This is our vision as well, that when the first chord strikes, as we begin worship and song at 10 a.m., that we would be singing, everyone here, singing with a passion with our whole hearts. And when the word is preached, there would be a reverent, a submissive silence as we're about to be addressed. Not just by a pastor, a human person like Al or Corey or Jose, but being addressed by God himself. Now, I realize there's moms here. and It is difficult to think with children. What I'm talking about here is a disposition a readiness, a heart preparation, an anticipation to hear God's word and to be ready to worship on Sunday mornings. I'm not trying to condemn the person who may have come late by providential circumstances today. I'm talking about a pattern. Would this pattern be in your life? Would there be a casualness the way you approach Sundays that would not honor God, that in fact would not be worshipful? That is what we're addressing this morning, and that's what I believe this text helps us address. But I also realize there's others this morning that say, yeah, I'm for orderly worship. You know what, Corey? I just don't share in your passion, your passion for worship and song, your passion for the word. I feel I can't change. I feel it's just 
who I am. It's the way I am. But when you're honest with yourself, you want something to get excited about. Yes, on Sundays, but every day. You want something to live for. Not just to live for, you want something to die for. Oh, there's hope this morning. There is hope this morning. That leads us to verse 17. The disciples, seeing this take place on the temple, in the temple courts, this clearing or cleansing of the temple, says, his disciples remembered that it it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Zeal for your house will consume me. The hope is that Jesus can cleanse, purify, and change your heart. And he is zealous to do so. He is zealous to do so. Here the disciples are remembering in this quote, the words of King David, a type of Jesus in the Old Testament. They're quoting from Psalm 69, verse 9. King David had said in his psalm, zeal for your house has consumed me. But Jesus now comes on the scene and says, it is said, zeal for your house will consume me. Christ is saying, I will be spent. I will be consumed that you may worship God with passion and purity as those who have been cleansed. You see, he didn't just come to cleanse the temple. He came to cleanse you and me. Don't miss that. That you may enter in to a wholehearted worship of the Father with a passion and a purity and a reverence and an honoring due his name. Holding nothing back because there is no unforgiven sin which is holding you back. Do you see it? Jesus did all this by being consumed. The word there can be translated devoured, literally eaten up, crushed for you. Jesus is speaking here about his death to come on the cross. And the disciples are making the connection for us And so is John for us today. You see, Jesus' cleansing of the temple was not only a demonstration of this passion and the zeal for God's glory. Oh, he just wasn't being a model for us today. He is being that. But much more as well. He's not just being a model of what passionate worship and righteous anger looks like. He's being the means by which we too can enter into that same passionate worship and zeal for the Father. He is the model. He's also the means. You see, this act was also a prophetic act as well. It was, as you will, a parable, which he was enacting, pointing to the impending destruction of the very temple in which he was standing on. And he was saying, I will become the resurrected temple in which you now can meet God and worship the Father with purity and with passion. Not only do I want you to make a way, not only do I want you to worship God, my Father, with zeal and passion, I want to make a way for you to do it as well. You see the physical temple right here, John? It was provisional. It was becoming spiritually obsolete. In fact, the temple we read about here in John Oh, it was the second temple. The first temple that Solomon built had already been destroyed 
five centuries earlier by the Babylonians. And what we have here is a second temple, but it too would be destroyed as well. Christ said as much in Matthew 24, 1 and 2. I'm not going to read it and jot it down. Matthew 24, 1 and 2. Was he prophesied the destruction of this very temple as well? And we know historically it did happen in 70 AD that the Romans destroyed this very temple just as Christ had said. In fact, John's original readers, the original audience that was reading the Gospel of John, most likely were living during the time when the second temple had already been destroyed. And John inserts the story for us to see. He inserts the story into the void, that temple void. And said, there is someone who has come, who has been consumed for you. And in his body, he will become the new temple of the risen Lord in which you will worship. Christ's cleansing was a sign that the Messiah had come and the temple, the physical temple in Jerusalem was no longer needed. We read in Zechariah 14, 21. This day had been prophesied. Zechariah the prophet is speaking of the day of the Lord, the coming of the anointed one, the Messiah. When he says, there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. That day had come when Jesus entered the temple to cleanse the temple and to say, I am the prophesied one. Jesus came not only to purify our worship, but to be the center of our worship now as a new temple. In his zeal, he did not come just to purify the temple. Oh, no, no. He came to replace it. In your notes, B, Jesus replaces the temple. But you see the Jews, that is the Jewish leaders, didn't get it. A church, do you get it this morning? In verse 18 we read, So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? You see, they had missed that very prophetic sign, which is right before their eyes. And they, as the leaders, should have seen it. But see, they weren't concerned with ethics, morality. They weren't concerned with the meaning of the temple cleansing. They wanted a miraculous sign. Jesus, hey, do that uh, water into wine trick that we heard you did it in Cana. Yeah, do one of those. Why? Is it? Prove yourself. Show us what authority you have to do this temple cleansing here. And Jesus answered in verse 19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? Ah, verse 21. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. The Jewish leaders, they didn't get it. Neither did the disciples until Christ's resurrection. The ultimate sign of Christ's power, of his authority, his divinity, was and is his resurrection. Although the temple was to be destroyed, his resurrected body 
was to be the new temple that would replace the old forevermore, forevermore. The meeting place of God and man forevermore will be Jesus Christ. And his temple will last forever. Yes, it will forever. Next week, as you know, we celebrate Easter. We will be worshiping the resurrected one, the resurrected Christ, who is the new temple, who is the new meeting place with God. He is the new temple who will never see corruption nor decay, who will never be destroyed. We read prophesying of Christ, Psalm 1610, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 55, we read, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? You see, in the book of John, from chapter 13 on through the Passion Week, there is no reference to the temple. No reference. Why? Because Jesus had come to replace the temple. We read in a glorious day when we will be with Christ in the new heavens and new earth, i.e. heaven itself. We read in Revelation chapter 21, verse 22. This is John in this glorious vision of heaven. It says, I saw no temple in the city. That's the city of New Jerusalem. For its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb. Isn't that cool? Oh, no more temple. No more temple of Jerusalem. God has given us a superior, a better, a new temple in his son, Jesus, who is the permanent replacement. Oh, I hope you see. As Christians, our hope is not in some reconstructed temple in Jerusalem. It's not. It's in the person and the work of Jesus Christ who was consumed for us, who was raised for us as the new and the eternal temple that we might worship God now with purity and passion. Oh, church, and this is grace upon grace that what we now receive as believers. If you recall our first sermon on John, the prologue, chapter 1, verse 16, it says, in his fullness, in Christ's fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Grace that now replaces the former grace, a better grace, a superior grace found in Jesus. You see, it's no accident that this story, this narrative, comes right after the wedding of Cana, which we studied last week, in which Christ turned the water into wine. You see, the Jesus who was the life of the party in the first 11 verses of John chapter 2 is the same Jesus in the next 11 verses that was the party stopper. All for God's glory. The Jesus who turned 180 gallons of water into wine is the same Jesus who took a whip and in his righteous anger, cleansed and cleared the temple. The Jesus who filled 
the water purification jugs in the wedding at Cana. Purification jugs. It's the same Jesus who came and cleansed the temple that we might worship God. The Jesus whose blood is the new wine is the same Jesus who was consumed, killed, and bloodshed that we may worship him. Do you see it? It's grace upon grace. Grace upon grace. Church, I hope you see it. Why do you do all this? That we may worship God the Father with passion and impurity in and through Jesus Christ. The divine presence of God, which was once bound to the temple in Jerusalem, is now visible and encountered in the person of Jesus Christ who perfects our worship. If you don't know God this morning, I've got great news for you. You can come to Jesus. You can come to this new temple. You don't have to go to a church with stained glass windows to meet God. You don't have to put on your Sunday best clothes to come and worship God. You don't have this morning to come and pay some temple tax to come worship God this morning. You can come as you are, filthy, in need of his cleansing. For Christ was consumed for you. Consumed to the point of death. He was consumed on the cross. It's a payment for your sins and mine. You can come and you can meet God in and through Christ Jesus this morning. You can do it in your seats. You can do it as expressed through your prayer. A heart submission to your Lord. Yes, and Savior. Come and worship at the new temple of Christ Jesus. If you are a Christian this morning, please hear this. There is no geographic distance too great for you this morning to not be able to meet and do business with God. I just feel like saying that this morning. I don't know if someone's here. You may feel a long way from home this morning. Maybe you're a guest. Maybe you're a visitor this morning. And this isn't your home. You can encounter God right now through Jesus, right here. There is no geographic distance too far. There's no cultural distance too far for you this morning to meet God. You may be new here to Palm Vista. This may be a new culture for you. Living in Miami might be a new culture for you. It might be foreign to you. But Jesus is the new temple where God is worshipped in every culture, in every language. You can worship God right now for Jesus is proclaimed so God is there as well. And he is here in and through Christ Jesus and his word. There is no spiritual distance this morning that is too far for you not to do business with God right now. No spiritual distance. Why? 
Because God has traveled this distance and come to you this morning. He is your temple. He has come to where you are. Oh, do not hold back from God this morning. Do not hold back your heart. Do not hold back your emotions or your will because there's some forgiven sin that you are holding on to. Don't hold back. It is forgiven. Don't hold back this morning because you are distracted by some worldly concern or affair. Don't hold back. When we hold back in worshiping God, we are mocking God, the one who in his zeal was consumed and raised a new life. Let's not mock him this morning. Let's enter in with appropriate worship. Do his name. He was not consumed that we might be satisfied with a lukewarm, self-wallowing Christianity. He wasn't consumed in his zeal that we may just go through the motions on Sunday morning. He died that we may worship him with purity and passion and zeal. Oh, the church, this could look a lot of different ways this morning. It may be tearful prayers. It may be contemplative meditation. It may be righteous indignation at sin. It may also be rapturous joy as well. I think I've experienced all this week in some way in preparing for this message. That he is calling you to come and to worship the Father with a purity and a passion. Why? That we may be ablaze the passion and zeal for God's glory and fame. That the whole world may know that God reigns and his temple will never, never, never be destroyed. Let's pray. I'll have the worship team come up at this time. Dear Jesus, I am aware this morning that we are a people in need. We even need your help this morning to worship you. To give you the worship and honor that you deserve. So Lord, help us this morning as we affirm that you are our God and that Christ is our new temple through which we encounter you and meet you.